be able to accomplish the plan. And last week, we looked at the truth that he has become flesh, that he's fully human. He's dwelt among us, and he's shown us the glory of God. This week, I want to take time to look at the truths that he is both fully God and fully man. There are these two natures in the one person of Christ. And this is an important topic, actually, to understand. It's important to to grasp that these two natures are, are there in Christ. He is fully God and fully man. And to avoid the danger of perhaps ignoring or even denying one or the other. There's a, a famous mountain in northern, uh, northern England uh, called Hel- uh, uh, sorry, it's Helvelin, and uh, this is one of the highest peaks in Britain. And there's a famous hiking path between the two peaks called Striding Edge, and for good reason. The pathway is very walkable in good weather, but on either side, it, it drops off steeply down treacherous cliffs, and there are actually memorials to people who have slipped and fallen off one way or the other. This path and this picture really uh, is a picture of what we're called to in walking in this truth, that we can actually slide off one side or the other, to the left or to the right, in regards to who Christ is. We could slide off to the left and deny his divinity, say, yeah, sure, he's fully man, but he's not God, or he's at least not fully God and fall into error there. Or we can slide off on the other side, the right-hand side, and say, well, he's, he's fully God indeed, but fully human? Let's, let's kind of let's change our view on that somewhat. And, and these errors have been historic for the church, actually. The church, over time, has wandered on either side to her harm. When the church has neglected his divinity, uh, she's cut herself off from the power of his life and redemption and his reign. If God is less, if Jesus is less than fully divine, then his redemption is something less than what it is biblically. It's not perfect. It's not complete. And if he's not fully divine and his redemption isn't full and complete, then we must add something to it. We must add maybe our good works or at least our good ideas. And that's what you historically see with the church when it denies the fullness of his divinity, it eventually slides down the hill to deny his divinity entirely and to replace Jesus' function in the life of the church with good works and good ideas. Thus, the trend among the liberal church that at one time was faithful. Two-thirds of the churches that were founded in New England were founded as faithful churches by our Puritan forefathers. Two-thirds of them wandered into this era. And today, if you visited, you would find that Jesus is just one idea among many. So that's on one side. The other side is neglecting his humanity. And the church has made this error too. They believe that he's fully divine, and yet they'll elevate him in a way where where he is not relatable to God's people. He's he's beyond us. He's the distant God, and and he's more of of theory and theology, mere theology, instead of an actual, real Savior who understands our suffering and who has indeed taken on our sin as a man and put it away on the cross. He becomes more of a great idea. And the church tends towards formalism or Gnosticism as well in this era. Now, that's not just an error for the church as a whole, but those are errors for us as individuals. There are realities in our day-to-day life that are affected 
by our view of Christ. And I would submit that your experience of who Jesus is, your experience of who Jesus is this Christmas season is very much tied to understanding that he's fully God and fully man. So let's take time today to dig into this topic. Let's, let's take time to dig into the reality, the truth that these two natures work together. Now, I could do that in a lot of different ways. I could take you through the ministry of Jesus and watch what he does in his life and, and, and illustrate aspects of his ministry that point to his humanity, aspects that point to his divinity. But actually, all his ministry and his life actually has a focal point. It has a destination. It has a main purpose. Not a sole purpose, but a main purpose. And that is the purpose of the atonement, of the work on the cross. And in particular, uh, to sum that up, it, it has the focus of his blood shed. So what I want to do is to kind of narrow things down to today and talk about how the reality that he is fully God and fully man means that his blood is fully able to redeem us. That's the topic for today, okay? Uh, we're going to look at this. We're going to look at various scriptures. And, and I trust that God will show himself to us through his word as he does time and time again. But let's ask him to do that. Let's pray before we go any further. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for the word that we have, and we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here amongst us to help us understand. We thank you, Father, that you have superintended in your sovereignty the, your word, and, and we can look at your word today and encounter you, and that's what we ask for, God. I ask you, Lord, to help me to, to explain and to proclaim, to illustrate your word, I ask you, Lord, give us power to understand and give us power to believe and grasp it and worship as well. So come, Holy Spirit, and bless this time we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. There are so many verses we could look at. I won't look at all that we could possibly see, but one verse among many that stands out, 1 John 1, 7. It's a wonderful verse, beginning of this letter. It says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now the context here is that John, uh, the apostle, is instructing the church about what it looks like to be a genuine Christian. And he's calling genuine Christians to do what they ultimately want to do, to walk in the light, to not walk in the darkness. And he calls them to this experience of living in the light and living in fellowship with one another. And in that place experiencing this glorious truth that the blood of Jesus, his son, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, you've probably seen that verse. Many of you probably have seen that verse before, and, and, and you probably think, well, yeah, I got that. I know what that means. And I understand that the blood of the son shed on the cross atoned for my sins, that he paid the payment that I should pay because I've willingly sinned against God and others. Yet he voluntarily took that on himself, and through faith in him, I am forgiven, and I am counted righteous before God. Got that. Jesus did that. Good news. But the problem with that is sometimes we can kind of think through that and just hurry by the truth without contemplating and thinking about what it's saying, thinking about the depth of the meaning here, that it, it says that the blood of Jesus God's Son, the Son of the Father, the God-man, Jesus, the eternal God in human flesh, His blood, God and man, His holy blood, His powerful blood, 
His blood was shed for us to cleanse us, not from some sins, part of our sins, but from all sin. It's, it's a wonderful phrase. It's a glorious phrase uh, here, and it says so much just in this one little phrase. It speaks of the blood of Jesus, his son, the, the son of God. It's speaking of Jesus. And in here we see truths about his humanity and his divinity and his atonement through his blood. It's full of glorious truth. And so I want to take time to unpack these truths, the truths that are contained here in this Scripture and others. And I want to take time just to look at really three aspects of the blood of the God-man that are important aspects but are there because of him being fully God and fully human. These three aspects operate and are true for, about his blood because he's fully God and fully human. So we're going to just journey through these three points and see in it these aspects of his divinity and humanity. And the three, the three aspects of this blood are that the blood of the God-man uh, is personal, it is precious, and it is powerful. So we'll go through these three Ps and look at the truths of his humanity and divinity in it. So first, the blood of the God-man is personal. Why do I say it's personal? Well, there's a couple aspects to that. When I say personal, I mean it has to do with a person, a, a being, a solitary being, a, a person, a personality, an, uh, an identifiable, distinct person. That's what I mean when I say personal. That's what we mean when we use that word. We understand what a person is. His blood is personal. First, I say that because I want us to understand the connection between his blood and his person. I don't want us to get lost in the idea of blood and what that means, there's truths in that, but, but I want us to see it's personal. The Scripture talks about blood, actually, pretty early on. We see sacrifice mentioned, then later on in Leviticus, blood is mentioned. It's not something we, in our culture, like to talk about, and, and that's appropriate. But, but the Scripture doesn't pull punches on truth, and it talks about blood. Early on, Leviticus 17, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And then Hebrews 9, pointing back, looking back at Leviticus, says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So blood operates importantly in Scripture. But blood represents the life of the flesh. Blood represents life. It's not that blood in and of itself is important. Blood in and of itself is, is really just some water and proteins with, with iron oxide to make it red. That's really what it is. In and of itself, it's just that. But blood means something more than just those elements. Blood represents life, right? It's, it's, the, it's the, what sustains life in us. It's the, it's the fluid of life, and we understand that. We understand that intuitively. And, and that's why it operates these ways in Scripture. We understand it intuitively, uh, and that's why people who are a little queasy sometimes, right, they cut their finger and they look at the blood and, and they start to feel faint. Right? Have you ever had that happen? I've never had that happen. I'm actually pretty good with, with looking at blood, and I've actually, I won't tell you details, but I've had some operations and I've actually watched them do stuff. I think it's cool. But I've actually also, I had one time when I was uh, cutting some wood, carving some wood, and I cut my thumb, and it went in, and it went down to the bone, and I grabbed it, and I actually just about passed out, and it was just the shock of it, um, and, and so there's this, there's this 
instinct in us, right, when we see blood, to be shocked. I mean, that's what we find horrifying when you watch accounts of war and so forth, right? It's when you, when you see blood, you see blood where it shouldn't be. It's shocking. Why? Because it represents the precious life that was given. In that blood and, and seeing it, it represents that life loss and all of that that means in the blood, right? That's what's going on. That's how blood operates in Scripture. And that's how the blood of Christ operates in Scripture. It, it relates to his life. And so the blood of Christ points to the person of Christ. That's the first way it's important. The blood isn't somehow a magical substance. No, it, it relates and it points to or represents the life of Christ. That's the first way it's personal. The second way is that this blood flows in the body of a person, a singular person, a a individual, Jesus Christ, the God-man. And he is a person, and he is both fully God and fully man, and one person. He is two natures, fully God and fully man in every way. He's not a diminished God. He's not 50% God. He isn't like, it isn't like his mind and soul are God and the rest of them is human. He's fully God, and he's fully human. He's not a combination of God that kind of makes a new third substance. No, he's fully God, and he's fully human. He's not God living alongside in Jesus, the, the, the man Jesus. These are all actually errors that the church has made historically. He is none of these things. He is fully God, 100% God in every way. No dis diminishment of that. He chose not to exercise his prerogatives as God in in many ways, of course, being human, he humbled himself, but he still possessed those qualities fully. And he's 100% man, and he's one person, Jesus Christ. So the blood of this one person is connected to his divinity and his humanity inextricably. That's important to get. Now, it's a mystery, really, because you start to think about it like, whoa, wait a second, it doesn't make sense. How can an eternal, infinite God who is spiritual and non-corporal, he doesn't have a body, uh, an eternal, infinite being that cannot be contained anywhere, the universe itself cannot contain God, how can he be contained in one person? Because he is. That's what we're taught. There are two truths that seem to be contradictory, right? If God cannot be contained, if he's greater than the universe, he fills the whole universe, he's present in one way or the other, everywhere, in the fullness of his being, everywhere, and yet he's not contained by everything, yet he's in one person. One person, Jesus. One human entity, Jesus. That's contradiction, isn't it? That's, that's a paradox. It's a mystery. And we have to be careful with mystery because sometimes we want to have it fully explained. Um, we don't like mystery. We want explanation. In our culture, not so much now with postmodernism, but... In modernism, we, we abhorred mystery. We want everything explained. If you can't explain it, it's just not true. That's how we regarded things. Well, the universe is full of mystery. And there's mystery in Christ. It, it's mystery because we don't understand it. It doesn't mean it's mystery because it's somehow, you know, undiscovered or whatever. It's known by God. It's just we don't get it. It's hidden from us. And so we must be content to say and proclaim with the church, historic, 
that he is fully God and fully man in one person. Confession of the Council of Chalcedon, A.D. 451, put it this way. We all unanimously teach that our Lord Jesus Christ is acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The difference of the natures being in no way removed because of the union, but rather the properties of each nature being preserved and both concurring into one person and one, one hypostasis, that's one being. Not as though he were parted or divided into two persons, but one and the self-same Son and only begotten God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ. The result of this truth and living in this is living in the full assurance that as being fully God and fully man, his blood is fully able to redeem us. And Scripture reveals his blood this way. It reveals the atonement both in terms of his humanity and his divinity. So Hebrews 2, 14 to 17, we have these to project. I think we read this last week. It's speaking about his humanity here. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's the children of God, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to put away God's just wrath for the sins of the people by his blood. So he had to be a man. He had to live life as we know it. He had to suffer as a man. His suffering was as a man. He didn't take shortcuts in his suffering. Okay, All the things that he endured in his life and in his death were as a man, a human he didn't take shortcuts. He didn't say, hey, I'm God. I'm just going to kind of take a God pill and I'll be strong enough to endure this. No, he went through it all as a man, the fullness of suffering, because he needed to do that in order to identify with us, in order to suffer fully, in order to truly atone for us. He must have done it. He had to do it, Scripture teaches us, as a man. But he also did it as God. And it's hard at times to understand this. We'll talk about this in a little bit how this can function, because there's things, God, God is beyond suffering, God is eternal, God, God never dies, and yet God the Son in taking on flesh, Jesus Christ, the person, died. There's mystery there. There are things we can say for sure in Scripture, there's things that we don't understand. So Colossians 1, 15, speaking of Jesus, Talking about his blood in this passage says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That means he's God in every way. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He brings reconciliation, he brings resolution to the whole universe as God in the flesh, dying on that cross, shedding his blood. So he's God. The blood of Christ flows from the person who is both fully divine and fully God. His blood speaks of the person. His blood points to who Jesus is, his person. That's important to understand. The blood of Christ is personal. It points us to him. In, uh, nine, in 2011, my dad uh, passed away, and I found that when my dad had passed, there were many 
ways that I missed him. And really the life of a person is shared in many countless ways that we may not identify or measure until they're gone. And so with my dad, uh, one of the things about him was I, I missed uh, his aftershave. He uh, used royal lime cologne. I don't know, that might be really old school, but... Uh, and I probably used it from his honeymoon. They had done their honeymoon in Bermuda, and that's where it's made. It's still out there. But to smell royal lime, lime cologne is to bring back hundreds of memories of my dad. There's a connection there between smell and memory. And, and it's as if when I smell that, that he's right there in the room when I smell royal lime cologne. But it's not about the cologne, though. I don't focus on the cologne when I smell it. Oh, I love that smell and just kind of, you know, it's all about the cologne. It's about my dad. And that cologne points to my dad and who he was and all these memories I have of my dad. So it is with the blood of Christ. When we talk about the blood of Christ, it's not about the blood per se. It's about Christ. It's about Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man and all that he is, all who he is and all that he did for us. It points us to him. The blood of Christ is personal. And the blood of the God-man is also precious. First Peter 1 says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. His blood, the blood of Christ, is precious blood. Not just like ordinary things or extraordinary things like silver and gold, but, but precious. Lamb, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus is that lamb. He's the perfect, holy, innocent lamb who went voluntarily to the slaughter. His blood is precious because it's infinitely holy. There's no sin in him. There's only righteousness. There's only goodness. And that holiness comes out of his full humanity and his full divinity. The holiness of his blood, the preciousness of his blood, is because he's both fully God and fully man. These two must function. So how does this work in his humanity? He lived a perfect human life. A fully human life. He is, he is the most human human. Hear that. He is the most human human. He led a full life, the fullest life possible, a perfect life. He completely obeyed his heavenly Father. Completely loved others to the point of death on a cross. He put faith and obedience in his Father first. And love for others first. He fulfilled the law. He was the second Adam who did not give in to the temptations of the serpent but chose to believe the word of God and obey, no matter what it would cost him. He's the seed of Abraham, given of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. He's the second Moses, who came as the mediator between God and man, without fault, leading the people in the heart of the law. He lived as the second David, to be the good shepherd, leader of God's people, without compromise of murder or adultery that David went into. He came as the true Israel, like perfect Israeli in covenant under, through Moses who abided in the Father and, and through his obedience, through his faith, through his perseverance, won all those blessings promised to God's people through the covenant of Moses. He did all these things as a man. And he suffered as a man. Not only in the common things of life, a simple life, but an impoverished life, 
but also as the one who received in himself on the cross all the curses promised to those who broke God's covenant. The, the covenant under Adam, which said to believe and to obey, and if you don't, there'll be death. That curse of death he took on himself. The curse in the covenant with Moses of exile and destruction he took on himself. He went to the cross and bore these things. The earning the blessings promised to the faithful, obedient man and bearing the curses promised to the rebellious, disobedient ones. That's you and me. As a man. But he could only do this perfectly and faithfully as God. It's because he's God in the flesh. Because of his divinity. His holiness. Being fully man and really going through everything, not pulling any punches as a man, he did it perfectly because he's God. Because he, God alone can save. We couldn't do it. No man or woman could have done it. No angel could have done what he did. Endured what he endured. Only God in the flesh. He is God as a man. A true man. So God in the flesh, He obeyed where we had failed, and this union of God and man was faithful and shed His blood. Because He is fully God and fully man, He was able to do it. He was able to, to live the perfect life and offer up that life to the point of death. And because He is fully God in all this, that blood is of infinite worth. It is of infinite worth because He is God in the flesh. There is a mystery in this. That his divinity is attached to his blood. And the mystery just has to do with the fact that like, God is spiritual. God doesn't have flesh and blood. But Jesus does. And he is fully God and fully man. So there's a connection between his divinity and his blood that's hard to understand. But it is there. And, and his divinity adds worth makes that blood infinitely precious. So when that blood is shed, it's of infinite worth and therefore infinite power. And I can show you just a couple verses that point to this. Acts 20, 28. Paul is instructing elders in the church of Ephesus, and he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for, listen to this, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Wow. I don't understand that. God obtained the church with his own blood. I mean, I understand that. I understand what Jesus did. But how can it say God obtained it with God's blood? I don't quite understand it. But what I do know is that the fully God, fully man, person, Jesus Christ, shed his blood to buy the church. And that blood is of infinite worth. Because it is the blood of the God-man. He's able to save us. He's able to save us completely. How precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. Christ has done this. The preciousness of his blood is beyond measure. I hope, I hope this is hitting you. These truths are hitting you in a way where it's kind of filtering down and you're seeing how it affects your life and how it impacts your faith and 
how it makes you think about Christmas, how it even makes you think about life right now. This precious blood was shed for you. This blood of infinite worth was shed for you. This blood of the fully human, fully divine Jesus Christ was shed for you. This precious blood, this powerful blood, this personal blood given for you. The preciousness of this blood is important for us to grasp so that we put our faith in him and the one who is fully God and fully man. Avoiding slipping off that cliff either way has to do with grasping the preciousness of the blood because he's fully God and fully man. And there's real impact with that. This past week, uh, I don't know if you follow Tom Brady on Facebook, but I do. He's my friend. <laughs> Tom and I interact. Though he doesn't say anything to me, I say stuff to him and give him advice on game plans and stuff. No, I don't do that. But on Facebook, actually, this past week, he did this thing where he uh, took three pairs of slippers, his Ugg slippers, used Ugg slippers, and signed them and wrapped them in a bow and hid them in different parts of Boston. We have a picture to show. And uh, you can imagine the, uh, what went on as a result of this. So he signed them and he put them in three places. One place in the Back Bay area, actually by the uh, Esplanade, right by the water. Um, and he, another was uh, Dorchester Heights and, uh, and then the Chestnut Hill Reservoir by BC. So he gave little clues and stuff and hid them and stuff. And, and people went nuts. The next, next photo, please. Uh, there's one guy who was so excited to get them on uh, Dorchester Heights that he fell and uh, he scraped himself and broke a tooth. And, uh, and he posted on Tom Brady's site, and actually he gave him a pair of slippers. I just don't think my tooth is worth a pair of Brady's slippers, but he does. Um, and why, though? Why, I mean, why the, why the stampede to get slippers, used slippers? Why? Well, they're Tom Brady's slippers. He's the... The goat, right? The greatest of all time. He's the, the guy. And, and so he's valuable, right? So even his slippers are valuable to have his, and they actually are monetarily. That's probably how some people were thinking. Hey, I can get some good money for these slippers. But they're precious because he is famous and precious. There's a connection. Even more so with Jesus. The blood of Christ is precious because Christ is precious. He is glorious, far beyond anything Tom Brady ever would even dream to be. Tom will one day bow his knee and confess with his mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We pray that that will be from a heart that's willing and glad to say that. And Jesus will be worshipped by billions of angels. Nick read that earlier. We're going to finish that with that today from Revelation 5. Billions of angels and countless redeemed ones worshiping him, the one who shed his blood for us and redeemed us, the one whose blood purchased men and women for God from all peoples, including the Isan in Thailand and everywhere else. You know, if, if you happen to be one of the people that found those slippers, I think you'd be pretty happy today. And you would probably remember this Christmas season, right, from years beyond here as, oh yeah, I remember that Christmas. That was the year I found Tom Brady's slippers, right? 
You would value your Christmas by that, and, and I don't think that's necessarily wrong. But you have a greater reason to be happy this Christmas. You found something more precious than Tom Brady's slippers. You have come to know if you have put your faith in Christ. And if you haven't, you can do that right now. You just need to turn away from other alternatives, sin and self, and say, I'm putting my faith in Christ alone and his blood. And you have found this, this blood shed for you to pay for you. And he's done it not as Tom Brady did on Facebook, but personally. He shed his blood for his people on that cross. He knew what he was doing, and he knew who you were. And he knows who you are. And he has given his blood for you. This precious blood given for you. It's yours. And you have no greater reason to be satisfied and truly happy this Christmas and every day of your life. Finally, the blood of the God-man is powerful. Thanks for your patience as we go a little over time today. The blood of the God-man is powerful. It's able to do all that it's meant to do without any failure in the least. There's no lack of power in his blood because it is the pure, holy, infinitely worthy blood of Christ, fully God and fully man. And so Romans chapter 3 can say, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive, be received by faith. His blood propitiates. It puts off the holy justice of God, the holy wrath of God. That's what the word propitiate means. The reality is, guys, in our sin and our rebellion against God, we deserve his disfavor. We deserve punishment. We deserve exile. We deserve those curses in our sin. As we've said, we don't want your ways, God. We want our own ways, and we've chosen to go our own ways. And it's just and right that we receive his wrath, his justice. And God's wrath and justice is not like you read in the fairy tales. It's not vindictive. It's not petty. It's pure. It's holy. It's right. At the end of all the ages, nobody's going to be like, oh God, that's just going to mean what you just did. Everyone's going to say, just and true are your judgments, O oh God. They're good. They're right. They're just. And the reality is in our sin, that the wages of sin is death, that the wages of our sin is punishment. And we deserve to pay that. And yet, amazingly, God has sent His Son for us to come and be fully God and fully man and to shed his blood for you to make payment for your sins, to put off the wrath of God, to propitiate the wrath of God by his blood and so that you would be justified. His blood is paid to pay for your sins and his blood represents his life given for you on the cross. So his righteous life of obeying and fulfilling and all the goodness and all the worth of his life is now offered on your behalf on the cross. So the blood of Christ speaks of our forgiveness and our acceptance in Christ. That's what justified means. That's why we are justified by his blood. Because of who he is, when he sheds his blood, we are fully forgiven and fully counted righteous and accepted as if we had been the ones who had lived such glorious, worthy lives. Isn't that amazing? That's what it means to put your faith in Christ and belong to him. 
you are forgiven and you are counted as if you had lived his life. That's what justify means. It, it carries both the meaning of payment for wrongdoing and acceptance of being worthy. That's what it does. This single offering, Hebrews 10, 14 says, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You are perfected in Christ. You are counted righteous in Christ. His blood is effective to, to perfect you, to make it so that you stand forgiven and perfect before him. And it is effective to pay for your sins and your acceptance the whole way. The whole way. This is why in John 10, Jesus can say, no one can snatch them out of my hand. He says, I am the good shepherd. I, kn I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. He sheds his blood for his sheep. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He has shed his blood for you, and if you are a believer, you are a sheep. No one can snatch you out of his hand. Why? Because his blood has already paid the price, made you justified, and it is fully able. It is infinitely holy and worthy blood. It is precious and priceless and glorious. And because of that, you are safe in Jesus. His personal, his precious, his powerful blood. If a team could come up as we close. This is what Christmas is about, guys. This is where Christmas is ultimately pointing us. All these truths here. We are safe in Christ. He has shed his blood for us. A little while back, uh, someone gave me uh, some pomegranate juice. I don't know if any of you guys drink pomegranate juice regularly. Um, and they did it. Uh, it. They gave it to me free, and it was nice. It, I liked the pomegranate juice. Uh, there were all these claims. There are all these claims about pomegranate juice. I don't know if you've encountered this. We have a picture, I think, of a bottle to put up, Ethan. It's supposed to do all sorts of amazing things. Um, it's supposed to lower your cholesterol. It's supposed to reduce aging. I need both those things. Um, prevent heart attacks. Fight infections. Um, keep your love life strong. Eliminate arthritis. Improve memory. Reduce fatigue. And even prevent cancer. Pomegranate juice is supposed to do all that stuff with amazing powers. And, and it may all be true. So go ahead and drink your pomegranate juice. But there's something more powerful than pomegranate juice. And when we take it in through faith and celebrate it in communion, it brings life. It brings healing. It covers all of our sins. It makes us to be counted righteous. It reconciles us to God. It ensures that he will never leave us nor forsake us. We are counted as his sons and daughters. We get an inheritance that will last forever. We get a life with purpose. We have suffering that works ultimately for good. We have good fruit to produce. We have an eternal reward that he gives us as we just simply respond to his grace. He puts us as a member of his family. All these things through the blood of Christ that is freely available to any and all who would believe in it shed for them. No more sorrow, no more sickness, an eternal new creation that's coming 
all from this glorious God-man, Jesus Christ. It's no wonder that we read about this celebration in Revelation 5. Revelation 5, 9. says, They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll. The scroll represents the unfolding and fulfillment of God's plans. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That includes us. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Guys, let's close in our time by worshipping the Lamb that was slain. By worshipping the God-man, fully God and fully man, who shed His blood for us. This personal, precious, and powerful blood that is fully able to redeem us. Let's stand. Lord, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for who you are. You're fully God and fully man. Your blood has been shed for us, and in this we are forgiven. In this we are accepted. In this we are reconciled. In this we are safe and secure. We have you. The very best Christmas gift we could ever know. So, Lord, fill our hearts with gratitude and joy as we sing and celebrate, we pray. Comfort for weary sinners, strength for the struggling saints. Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. Peace when the waves are pounding, when voices of hope sound faint. Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. 